Well, it is my privilege this morning to open up the Scriptures. And the goal this morning is to give you a fresh glimpse of the greatness and the glory of our gods as we continue our study uh, in the book of Exodus. Now, of course, we have determined that the central question of this book is, Who is the Lord? And as we focus on the 11th chapter this morning, now, God willing, with the Spirit's assistance, we will be drawn closer to our God as we consider His magnificence. So please open your Bible, if you would, to Exodus chapter 11. Now, this particular chapter breaks up into three parts. The first three verses are a reminder. Verses 4 through to 8 are new information. And verses 9 and 10 are also a reminder or a summary statement. So Exodus chapter 11, and I'd like to read uh, all 10 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. And the Lord said unto Moses, Yet will I bring one plague more upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards he will let you go hence. When he shall let you go, he shall surely thrust you out hence altogether. Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor, jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill, and all the firstborn of beasts. And there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there was none like it, nor shall be like it any more. But against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these thy servants shall come down unto me, and bow down themselves unto me, saying, Get thee out, and all the people that follow thee, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And the Lord said unto Moses, No Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, so that he would not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Amen. The title for the sermon this morning is the Passover Preview. Let's pray. Almighty Father and wonderful God, we do thank you and praise you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you are uh, a great God. And Father, we do pray that our worship was acceptable before your sight this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have spoken to us. Lord, we are ever aware of our need to hear from you. And we do pray this morning uh, that all distractions would be removed. And that, Father, you you would speak to us. Father, please feed us. From your word this morning, we pray these things in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Now, within our household, we are Marvel fans. 
Now, Emma is a proper Marvel fan because she reads the comic books, whereas I just watch the movies. So if you want to judge me for that, that's okay. Now, as a result of our fascination with Marvel productions, we keep a very close eye on what movies are in the pipeline and when they will premiere. Now, one of the exciting things when one is looking forward to the premiere of a film is watching the trailer. And a good movie trailer should increase one's excitement and expectancy about the particular film. And I begin with this this morning because the chapter before us is really a trailer for the coming Passover. It is a preview to the grand finale of the plague drama. It is a promo to the final defeat of the Egyptian religious system. It is a clip revealing how God's people would finally be set free. It is interesting and instructive that the word plague has not been used until this preview of the final plague. Verse 1 of the 11th chapter is the first occurrence of the Hebrew word. And it means to strike, to wound or to mark out. And it seems that the writer has purposefully held this term back until the final and the most deadliest plague. It is vital for you and I to understand that this tenth plague was not an afterthought. It's not a case of God sitting up in heaven and thinking to himself, no, all my previous attempts have failed. I've tried hail, I've tried frogs, I've tried lice, and yet my people are still in slavery. What else can I possibly do? But that is not the case. But rather, this final plague was always going to be the grand finale. This was always God's plan. You know, Moses knew this the whole time. The identity of the final plague is revealed in Exodus 4.23. And yet Moses was not aware how many plagues would unfold before the climatic ending. This is the first time that Moses knew the end was fast approaching. This final plague of the death of the firstborn would declare loudly and clearly through the heavenly megaphone that Yahweh is Lord and Pharaoh is not. Pharaoh had asked the foolish question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And this question has been progressively answered through the whole plague drama. They have declared the supremacy of the Lord, that Yahweh is God alone. There is none like Him. And all of the previous nine plagues have attacked directly the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And repeatedly their gods have been proven to be ineffective nothings. It's been proven that they are the frauds that they truly are. And yet despite all of this, this Pharaoh still maintains the crazy delusion that he is deity. He still thinks he is God. And hence in this final plague, a mightier king than Pharaoh came to visit the land. And it is this that is revealed in this preview. 
Now Pharaoh asked the question, who is the Lord? And let's see what the text reveals. So I'd like to consider three qualities about our God from this Passover preview that reveal to us the greatness and the glory of our God. So firstly, I wish to consider that the Lord is supremely sovereign. The sovereignty in the world of theology speaks of both God's position and his power. As one theologian put it, God is the chief being in the universe and God is supreme in power in the universe. You know, when one hears this term sovereignty, the most simplest definition is this. God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that unfolds within it. Nothing is outside of his governance. He rules over all reality. Nothing can happen without God permitting it. Now, one theologian summed up God's sovereignty like this. God has a plan which is all-inclusive, which he controls, which includes but does not involve him in evil, and which ultimately is for the praise of his glory. It's a very good definition. And my friend, the Lord is the rightful ruler of all things. He is the sovereign one because he created all things and he sustains all things. This is his appropriate position and absolute right. And he executes this role perfectly because he is all-knowing, all-powerful and all-wise. And the Lord's sovereignty is revealed very clearly in the text before us. I want to draw your attention to the particular language that is employed throughout this account. And it reveals three realms of God's sovereignty. So number one, we see that God is sovereign over world events. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Yet will I bring one more plague upon Pharaoh. This language is very clear. It was the Lord who was about to unleash this final plague. Just as he had the previous nine, it was the Lord who was calling the shots. It was all unfolding according to his plan. Now, these plagues which were about to culminate in the ultimate devastation were not some random or haphazard events, but rather they were planned and they were executed by God. Notice in verse 4, we see the Lord's direct involvement. It says, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. It was the Lord himself who was going to perform this final plague. Later we are told that this was the angel of the Lord who I believe to be the pre-incarnate Christ. It was he who swept through the land and executed the judgment upon the firstborn. Now my friend, clearly the Lord is in control. This is shown furtherly in verse 7. Within verse 7, we see the discrimination of the destruction. God's people, Israel, would remain completely untouched from this final plague. 
There is a proverbial saying employed in verse 7 which says a dog shall not move his tongue. And that declares that absolutely nothing would harm the Israelites. And we see God's sovereignty in sparing his people. So God was in control of the unfolding events. All of this was happening according to his plan. I want you to see also that God was sovereign over the empire. Now in verses 2 and 3, there is a great softening of the Egyptian people towards the Israelites. Notice in verse 3, it says, The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And what we must understand is that this was not natural. The Egyptians typically hated the Hebrews. Allow me to give you a couple of verses. Genesis 43:32 says this. And they set on for him by himself, and for them by themselves, and for the Egyptians which did eat with them by themselves. Listen to this. Because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination unto the Egyptians. But they hated the Hebrews so much they wouldn't even eat with them. They wouldn't share a meal. Genesis 46.34 says that ye shall say, Thy servant's trade hath been about cattle from our youth even unto now, both we and also our fathers, that ye may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination unto the Egyptians. They hated all shepherds, and this is what the Hebrews did. So it's clear that the Hebrews were a despised race. The Egyptians hated them. And of course, they had been the Egyptians' slaves for centuries. They were looked down upon. They were despised, a despicable people. And remember that now, it is the Hebrews' God who has turned Egypt upside down and inside out. He has destroyed everything. So from a natural standpoint, there was every possible reason why the Egyptians should hate the Israelites more than ever. And yet this was certainly not the case. Oh, the Lord has turned the world's most powerful empire to look favorably upon his people. Even this great empire was under God's control. So the Lord was sovereign over events, he was sovereign over the empire, and he's also sovereign over the emperor. God is sovereign over the king. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And how clearly this proverb is illustrated before us. Now here is Pharaoh, he thought that he was God, that he was supreme, that he was in control. But how deluded this man was. For notice in verse 1, it says, speaking of Pharaoh, he shall surely thrust you out hence all together. Now, to understand this, we must remember that this ruler has been so stubborn and so arrogant. He had declined to release God's people. He completely and utterly refused. You You and I would say he's stubborn as a mule. And yet a great change occurs. He changed from complete refusal to literally forcing the Israelites to leave. 
Oh, this word thrust that is employed in verse 1 is very strong language. It literally means to drive out, to cast out or to expel. What a great change. The king has no way and then the king is forcing them to leave. It's clear that the king's heart was certainly in the hand of the Lord. As one author put it, this manifests the sovereignty and power of God to accomplish his purposes as he desires, even though man earnestly oppose him. Now, God can make man to do with great zeal what man is opposed doing for a long time. And that's exactly what's happening before us. And remember here, this is Pharaoh. This is the most powerful man in the whole world at this time, and yet he is but an ant in the hand of God. Now, he could not thwart God's plan. You know, I love what one writer said. No, Pharaoh's stubbornness had not thwarted the divine plan, but had been the dark background against which the blaze of God's irresistible might had shone the brightest. You know, don't you love that picture? You know, no being, no matter how powerful they may be, can hinder God's plan. So we've seen God is sovereign over the events, the empire and the emperor. He was sovereign then and he is sovereign now. Now, beloved, God is in complete control. There is nothing that happens in this world. There is nothing that happens in your life. There is not one individual, not one leader, not one country who is outside of God's jurisdiction. Now, there will be times in our lives when it feels as though things are out of control. But that is never the case. For God is always on the throne. He is always calling the shots. We must understand that nothing catches God off guard. Nothing surprises Him. He doesn't sit in heaven and think, Whoa, I didn't see that coming in Brendan's life. Now, my friend, nothing can happen without Him allowing it. Oh yes, this causes us some difficulties. It creates plenty of why questions in our finite minds. But my friend, it's certainly better than the alternative, isn't it? You know, of God not being sovereign and you and I just being the victim of mere chance. You know, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving God being in control of absolutely everything is a much better option. And it is the only option because that is what the Scriptures teach. You know, our God is sovereign and hence we need to learn to not just trust the Lord when things happen, but trust that the Lord is the one who makes things happen in the first place. You know, it's all according to his plan for his glory and we need to learn to submit to that plan, submit to his purpose. You know, we must understand that God is sovereign and we are not. And that can be hard because we are all naturally proud. We think we are in control, but that is not true. God is. And my friend, may we learn to trust and submit to the sovereign God, even when we don't understand, even when it makes no sense to us whatsoever. For God knows. He has a plan and nothing unfolds outside of his plan. And it will all bring him glory. Who is the Lord? He is the supremely sovereign one. Secondly, who is the Lord? The Lord is forever faithful. 
In verses 2 and 3, we have a remarkable turn of events, which we mentioned before. God gave the Israelites grace in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they show incredible generosity. Whether this was all of the Egyptians, we cannot be certain. Perhaps there were some who maintained the racial superiority that was so ingrained in Egyptian culture. But what is clear is that many have softened their stance towards the Hebrews. And as I thought about this, what this shows is the great chasm between Pharaoh and his people. They were now on completely different pages. It seems as though the people were happy for the Israelites to be freed. Even Pharaoh's trusted advisors, according to verse 8, wanted this. And yet Pharaoh still remained steadfast. He still refused. Now verse 1 informs us that this final plague was going to be the catalyst for the release of God's people. Now, after centuries of enslavement, finally they were going to be freed. But of course this was a problem. Because since they were slaves, they owned nothing. They needed material possessions. They needed finances in order to survive. And the providing of this is recorded in verse 2. The Egyptians were going to fund the release of their own slaves. Don't miss the irony. Don't miss God's humor. They are going to release their labor force and they are going to send them off with money. God's people were going to receive both gold and silver. This would finance their departure and sustain their existence until they could settle in the land of Canaan. And the Lord at this time moved the hearts of the Egyptians to give generously. You know, such is the generosity we're told in Exodus 12:36 that they spoiled the Egyptians. And this term spoiled speaks of plundering. And it would typically be used when an empire took over a city. They would plunder it. They would take absolutely everything that had any value. And hence, it's clear that God's people were provided for abundantly. You know, in verse 2, there's an unfortunate translation when it uses the term borrow. And this term has led Bible critics to say that the Israelites employed trickery and deception. Because if you borrow something, it implies that you are going to pay it back. But we must understand the Hebrew term means to ask, to beg, or demand. There is no treachery, there is no dishonesty, there is just a God. And God worked in the hearts of the people and they gave generously. There is a suggestion by some scholars that this is God getting His people what they deserved. It was a back pay of sorts. They had labored vigorously for centuries, making brick upon brick upon brick for absolutely nothing. And now God was ensuring that they received their wages for their labor. And perhaps this is the case. But what is clear is that this unfolded just as God had promised. 
Now this is a fulfilment of an ancient promise given to Abraham. In Genesis 15, where God made a covenant with Abraham, he informed the patriarch of what was going to happen to his people. Listen to verse 13 and 14, it says this, And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed, Israel, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. And also that nation, Egypt, whom they serve, will I judge. That's the plagues. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. The Lord promises that the nation who afflicted his people would provide them with great substance. And that is what is spoken of in our text. And it's fulfilled very, very clearly in Exodus 12. And my friend, what this confirms is that the Lord, our God, is faithful. If he said it, he will do it. And the fulfillment of the ancient promise should increase our confidence of the certainty that God will make good on all of his promises that he has made to you and me. Now, Every promise that God has made in his word, he will keep. And that is good news. You know, our God is faithful, he's trustworthy, he's dependable. That's who he is. You know, think of some of the promises that have been made for believers. We've been promised that Jesus will never leave us and never forsake us. Promised that nothing can separate us from the love of God. The promise that he will provide our needs. We've been promised eternal life. Promised that Jesus will return for us. Promised a home in heaven. Promised glorification. Promised that we will be with Jesus forever and so on. And these are as certain as if they have already occurred because of who gave the promise. God will keep every promise. He's true and faithful to his word. This is our God. So who is the Lord? He is forever faithful. Thirdly, who is the Lord? He is the just judge. In verses 4 through to 8, we have the preview of the plague finale, and it's dreadful in its severity. The Lord announces that he would personally move through the land and strike dead the firstborn, both of man and beast. Previously, Yahweh had caused the plagues, but this time he would be the immediate performer. It was the hand of the Lord that was going to be the great destroyer. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, on the fateful nights, you know, notice a particular day is not given. It's not Monday or Tuesday, and this would have left Pharaoh on the edge. You know, is it tonight? Is it tomorrow night? We are told it would occur at midnight. Now, this does not necessarily correlate with our concept of midnight, but rather speaks of the deepest and darkest time, the time of greatest vulnerability then the great destruction would be wrought. Now this final plague was going to be all-encompassing. Verse 5 tells us this, from the lowest person on the socioeconomic ladder to the highest, it speaks of the slave girl, she will suffer loss. And it also mentions Pharaoh. Now he too was going to suffer the loss of his firstborn. 
And that is particularly significant. Because Pharaoh's son was the prince of Egypt. He was naturally the next in line for the throne. But according to common Egyptian belief, he had much more in store for him than that. Though Pharaoh's son was believed to be the successor to the gods. No, Pharaoh was believed to be God on earth and his son would take this mantle. They taught that he would become the son of Ra. He would become the deity on earth whose primary role was to maintain order in the land. And hence this final plague again destroys the Egyptian religious system. It proves that Pharaoh's not a god because he certainly failed miserably in ensuring that the land remained free from chaos. This is the greatest chaos they would ever experience. And also their god in waiting, Pharaoh's son, was slain. The whole religious system is in ruin. Imagine the great devastation that this final plague was going to wreak on the land. You know, picture the devastation. Exodus 12.30 tells us that not one house remained unaffected. You know, this was widespread destruction leading to absolute devastation. All of Egypt was going to suffer in a way like they had never experienced before and will never again. Oh, great cries and wails would fill the land. You know, as parents finding their precious child limp and lifeless, you know, how brutal, how, how devastating. You know, all of this death and all of this destruction. Is it any wonder there was a cry like never before? You know, but could it be that these cries were also directed at Pharaoh? It was because of his great stubbornness that this final plague had been released. Notice that Moses' response as he leaves Pharaoh in verse 8. He has just laid all of this out. He has revealed the great destruction, the great devastation that was going to come, and yet Pharaoh still refused to listen. And we are told in verse 8 that Moses left The picture is he stormed out of the room in great anger. He was furious. And this is one of the first cases of righteous anger in the word of God. And to me it seems as though this was caused because Moses could see the great devastation that was pending. What this was going to do to the land. And it didn't have to happen if this stubborn and proud man would simply yield. And yet he did not. And hence the fate of the people had been sealed by their leader. It is arrogance and proud man. Now this final plague raises a few questions that we must answer. Is it right? Is it morally acceptable for Yahweh to kill all the firstborn of the land? Why not? Just kill Pharaoh's son. Why so brutal? How can a God of love inflict so much brutality? Now, as I'm sure you can understand, it's incredibly difficult to answer this question briefly and simply because it involves understanding the nature of the infinite God. But by beginning, we need to comprehend God's justice and God's holiness. His justice and His holiness are inseparably linked. 
We need to get that in order to answer these questions. But before we get to God's justice, we need to remember the simplicity of God. Because this is vital when we consider God as a just judge. Because as soon as we mention God judging someone, the question is inevitably raised, isn't God meant to be a God of love? I'm sure you've heard that before. You know, when we speak of divine simplicity, we mean that God is indivisible. So God is not made up of parts. For this context, God is love and he is just. There is not an attribute of God that carries to it more weight than another. God is not 75% love and the rest of his attributes make up the other 25%. There is not more love than there is justice. And that's important to remember. So let's now turn our attention to God's justice. You know, we all crave justice, don't we? It's a built-in desire. We watch the news and we see a criminal get away with something. It makes us angry and furious. And we craving justice should not surprise us because we are made in the image of God. And our God is just. That is who He is. And in the text before us, the death of the firstborn is God bringing justice upon Egypt. In order to fathom God's justice, we must first understand sin. For if one waters down sin, one will not appreciate or comprehend justice, nor will they understand its necessity. Habakkuk 1.13 teaches us that God is so pure and holy that he cannot even look on sin. God cannot tolerate sin. It's repulsive in his sight. He hates it. And hence, his justice flows out of his holiness. Now, people question God's justice because they do not understand God's holiness. Now, my friend, God's holiness demands judgments. And God is that judge. Abraham declares in Genesis 18.25, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And what we have recorded before us is the Lord executing just judgment upon the land of Egypt. And it's just for the following reasons. So number one, it was a just punishment for their sins. The death of the firstborn was an act of justice because Pharaoh had tried to exterminate the Israelites. Do you remember the beginning of the book of Exodus? It starts with attempted genocide, trying to destroy God's people. Then it goes to enslaving God's people with the purpose being to halt their reproduction. The Egyptians wanted to exterminate the Israelites and hence the punishment fits the crime. It was right for God to judge the Egyptians for their murderous ways. You know, the wailing that's spoken of in verse 6 that resulted from the final plague was a fair punishment for the way that the Egyptians had made the Israelites wail for 400 years. 
And it is particularly interesting that the exact same word is employed that describes the Israelites crying out to God and the Egyptians crying out after the Passover. So according to God's perfect justice, it was Egypt's turn to cry out in distress. The second reason, it was just because Egypt's crimes were against God's firstborn. Now the people that Egypt were oppressing were the children of God. Now when God first revealed his plan to plague Egypt, he said this in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, says this, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. What God did to Pharaoh was a direct response to what Pharaoh did to him. How Pharaoh treated God's firstborn would govern how Egypt's firstborn were treated. As one author put it, Pharaoh's decree was ultimately not against Israel's children, but God's children. And God will respond in kind. Now the Lord was simply paying Pharaoh back in his own currency. The third reason, it was just because they rejected their chance to repent. Now, something that's very easy to gloss over is the fact that nine plagues have already been released. There was ample opportunity to repent and stop oppressing God's firstborn, and yet this did not happen. And hence they sealed their own doom by failing to repent, making it completely just. And reason number four, the final reason, it was just because all deserved to die. Now, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. This refers to both physical death and spiritual death. And the Egyptians deserved to die because they were sinners by nature. Now, like the rest of us, they were born in sin. They, in Adam, inherited a sin nature. They then compounded their guilt by committing their own sin. We read of idolatry, slavery, genocide, and so forth. Oh, God would have been completely just in slaying every single one of them because they were all sinners and that is the just and fair price to pay. And the Bible teaches us that death is what we all deserve. We must understand that. That is the just payment because we are all sinners. We are born in sin and we commit sin. And thus when God chooses to claim a life as he did with the Egyptian firstborn, he is always justified in doing so. So in understanding the penalty for sin is death, the question is not if we are going to die, but when. No, God can judge whenever he pleases and by whatever means he deems necessary because as a holy God, he possesses the undisputable right to punish sin, to punish the sinner at any point. And my friend, God is just and he will judge. No, he, he did this to Egypt and he will bring judgment upon you and I as well. It's not a matter of when, but... If. Sorry, it's not a matter of if, but when. Better get that right. 
Hebrews 9.27 says that's appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. And my friend, as natural man, we all stand condemned before the righteous judge. We all deserve hell. That's the just and fair payment for our sin. And we must understand, since God is just, He cannot just look past your sin. Oh, it's okay, Brendan, I'll just ignore that. No, no, sin has to be punished. The good news is Jesus Christ provided a way. You know, that that is the gospel. He took care of the punishments. In Adam we all sinned, but God sent His perfect Son. He sent Jesus Christ, the second Adam, our federal head, and He took our sin upon Himself. God punished Jesus in our place, releasing His ferocious wrath upon His Son. And as a result of the cross, because of Jesus, it's possible for us to be saved from the penalty of sin because Jesus took care of it. You know, sin has to be paid for. It will either be paid for by you in hell for all eternity or it will be paid by Jesus on the cross. My friend, the choice is yours. Repent of your sin, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And for those of us in Christ... For those of us who have been redeemed, you know, our sins are gone. You know, they are buried in the deepest sea, removed as far as the east is from the west, and there is nothing left to pay because Jesus, Jesus paid the price in our place. You know, and now we are clothed in His righteousness and we are justified before the just God. We are acceptable in His sight. Praise God. And my friend, remember our God is just. You know, we crave justice and often in this world it's not served. But rest assured, our God is just and justice will always be served. It has to be served. No man can escape. And we can be certain that our God will bring perfect justice for He cannot do anything else. Who is the Lord? That is the question of the book of Exodus. He is sovereign, He is faithful, He is just. And my friend, that is our God. You know, what a great and glorious God we serve. And you know, may we love and adore Him. May we draw near to Him. May our relationship with Him mean more than anything else. And may we render the praise and glory that's due to His name. Amen.